Hey, my name's Alex, and welcome to Alex Listens. This is the place where I talk about things like philosophy and politics and psychology and race and mental health and identity and that kind of stuff. Today, I interviewed Dr. Paul Kamel, who is a senior psychiatrist, psychotherapist, and was once a philosopher uh, who works at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. And we spoke about a lot of stuff. Uh, I guess we began with Paul's transition from uh, philosophy to psychiatry, because that's a pretty unique transition. I don't imagine there are too many people who go from the humanities to the medical sciences. At least there aren't too many people I know who are planning on doing that. Then we spoke about the limitations of therapy and talk therapy and uh, how the kind of how there is a power imbalance between the practitioner and the patient and what that means and um, you know how Paul conceives of that relationship and how he thinks about his role as a therapist and uh, how he relates to his patients and that kind of stuff. Um, then I asked Paul about depression um, because that's something I talk a lot about on the podcast and um, I asked him about its onset, uh, its nuances, um, uh, the way it affects me. I kind of uh, spoke about that a little bit. Um, and then, yeah, we spoke about uh, psychoanalysis and its presence in the Australian medical system. And yeah, it's just a really uh, insightful conversation and really sheds light on um, what it's like to be a psychiatrist. Uh, and that's why I interviewed Paul. Uh, but also there is this um, kind of existential philosophical lens through which Paul seems to view his work. And that's incredibly interesting. And that comes out a lot in the conversation. There's a lot of existentialism and a lot of questions of meaning and purpose and belonging that seem to underscore Paul's discussion of things. And that's why I was drawn to Paul and reached out to him. So yeah, before I play you the episode, um, just a something to note if you're enjoying alex listens or any of the other work that i do you can support the podcast and the project in a number of different ways first of all you can go on my website www.alex.co slash contribute and there you'll find links to patreon and paypal where you can pledge a little bit of money and it will help me afford to run the podcast which would be great because it's pretty expensive and i don't have ads so i rely on your support otherwise you know just follow me on social media I'm on Instagram. That's where I'm most active at Alex listens. I'm also on Facebook at Alex listens project. Um, and yeah, that's, that's all. Otherwise just, you know, leave me a review on Apple podcasts. If you like the podcast, I'm on YouTube as well. Go follow me on YouTube. I make some videos sometimes and that's pretty much it. Oh, and tell your friends, you know, tell all your friends if you like the podcast. Anyway, enjoy the episode. Bye. Dr. Paul Camel, Camel, sorry, thanks, thanks for coming along. Um, how how are you going? Very good, very good, thank you. How about yourself? Yeah, um, yeah, it's amazing. As soon as I clicked record, the rain has just started to pelt down. So hopefully, it the mic doesn't pick that up. But you know, Melbourne, what can you do? Um, yeah, so I suppose one thing that I'm actually really bad at doing is getting people to introduce themselves. So do you think you could introduce yourself? 
I can certainly do that. So I'm Paul Kamel, and uh, who am I? Well, I suppose um, relevant to this broadcast, I'm a, a psychiatrist. So I work, I, I do a mix of things. I've got a lot of different roles. So I work in the public sector in emergency psychiatry. So I'm interested in remaining in the public sector and, and working in, in those types of roles. But one of my core interests is psychotherapy. So I work um, in training roles in psychotherapy. So I head up a training program at um, a hospital, St. Vincent's Hospital. And I also head up uh, training programs in psychotherapy for the Royal College of Psychiatry. Uh, and I do some research as well in uh, psychotherapy, personality disorder. And that's where my interest in philosophy have come in as well, because I originally trained in philosophy. So that was a really formative uh, interest of mine and, and very influential for me and that's kind of carried through in the in the work and the study that I've done which I think is one of, one of your interests and what brings you to um, get in touch with me because you're interested in philosophy aren't you? Yeah yeah and that, that because it, I, it's very rare that at least uh, in my experience as a philosophy student and as someone who initially did um, biomedicine that was my first degree and because I thought I was going to do medicine um, it's very rare for people to be trained in the humanities and then go into the medical sciences um, yeah and especially uh, philosophy degrees um, although it seems like there's an amazing amount of overlap between like you know there's a lot of ethics in psychiatry and there's um, you know a lot of philosophers philosophy of mind a lot of stuff about consciousness and experience so yeah it's it i guess it's a real shame that it seems like uh people choose this really streamlined path more often than you know streamlined straight through the sciences there's no kind of um not too much engagement with the humanities but yeah cool okay um so yeah i suppose let's start with your uh your time doing philosophy so what how, how did you I guess, how were you introduced to philosophy? How did you begin there? I suppose I came out of school, and it's always interesting looking back at your life retrospectively because sometimes it makes sense retrospectively what was kind of evolving for me, but at the time I didn't really know. I came out of school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had a disparate range of interests. I took a bit of time off before I went to university um, and I wanted to... I guess, learn more in a general sense. I didn't have a particular career track in mind. And uh, I was very interested at that point, right from the beginning in, in literature and philosophy. But also, I think there were the, the kind of beginnings of someone that might be interested in, in um, working in some kind of clinical way, like in psychotherapy or psychology or psychiatry, because I, I also studied psychology. So I did an arts and science combined degree and did a lot of those courses and, and became increasingly interested in in philosophy and in psychology as well as studying other areas like anthropology and neuroscience and those kinds of things so philosophy really interested me and inspired me I had some really passionate teachers um, and I think that that influence stayed with me all the way through so uh, I was at Australian National University and at that time there were two philosophy departments uh, one of which was in the general faculties and there were quite a lot of uh, teachers and academics that were exposed to European philosophy, um, one of whom taught Heidegger and had been over in Germany and studied with, with Gadamer and um, he had a lot of direct experience and influence from um, studying over there and, and 
really broad uh, phenomenology and, and ontology and, and those kinds of various Husserl and, and Heidegger mm. alive for the students. And um, there were other uh, teachers who'd been um, over in, in France studying with um, with uh, Foucault and, and um, wow. other French thinkers. So really that brought it all alive mm. for me. It was almost like one or two degrees of separation and, and really... Um, learning very experientially about uh, those areas of philosophy, so that kind of brought it alive for me. And um, and along the way, studying psychology, I guess I was thinking more increasingly about some kind of professional training and reached a crossroads where it was: if I want to work clinically, do I want to go a bit further and study medicine and go into psychiatry and maintain my interest in philosophy along the way with further study? So I guess some of the psychoanalytic theorists became interest, interesting to me as well and ones that were quite conversant in philosophy like Jacques Lacan and people like that. So I went into studying those thinkers as well and, and so quite a lot of study before I worked um, clinically so I had quite a lot of formation before I went into the clinical areas. Mm, yeah, and um, yeah, right. I think, I'm not sure if you're still, if you've, uh, stayed abreast with the ANU philosophy faculty, but I think you'd be pretty hard pressed to find any European philosophy coming out of that university anymore. It seems, to, yeah. yeah. I think um, there's a big drift to Sydney uh, University from the people that I studied under in the 1990s. Uh, I saw that a lot of them ended up in Sydney, where there are those two departments. I'm not sure if that's still the case as well. I'm stuck in the 1990s and the 2000s, <laughs> but there used to be to um, philosophy departments at Sydney as well. And and the more continental or European oriented one, the figures that influenced me went there. Yeah, right. Yeah, I wonder why. Um, it's it's sad that, yeah, that it seems like Australia has mostly abandoned continental philosophy. But um, yeah, okay, cool. Um, so I suppose one, one thing that uh, myself as someone who has been in therapy and spent a lot of time thinking about my relationship to my therapist and the kind of, you know, patient, psychiatrist, uh, encounter relationship. Um, I guess one, one thing, and also something that's been driven by my philosophy is the direction of psychiatry and the direction of the psychiatric encounter. Um, I suppose a lot of the time, because I do psychotherapy with my psychiatrist, I, I am often, uns- it, it feels less tangible, at least the the, uh, the, le- the things I take away from it feel less tangible than, let's say, some CBT stuff, which I've done in the past, where there are, you know, very clear instructions, you know, recognize this pattern of thought, you know, kind of intercept it, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I wondered if you had any thoughts about the direction of psychiatry. Um, and maybe maybe it's very different from you know, each patient. But yeah, I guess I, a lot of the time I feel very uncertain about what I'm actually doing, spending, you know, an hour every now and then talking to this mysterious man about my problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, there's lots of different kinds of psychiatry as well. So it sounds like you're seeing a psychiatrist, psychotherapist um, in, in private practice and, and going through a psychotherapy with that person. And a lot of psychiatrists... Um, work in more consultative roles where they might see people really quite infrequently or for one-off consultations or they work in teams and, and, and inpatient 
um, environments and all of those kind of things. It sounds like the psychiatrist you're seeing might be working in long, longer term psychotherapy and, and if it is more in what we call a psychodynamic orientation mm. uh, or a psychoanalytic psychotherapy orientation, what's different about that is I guess it's um, built upon a relationship and um, it's a relationship where there's a treatment frame so you organise when you see the person and where you see them and how regularly and there's this open uh, relationship where things can evolve over time where attention's paid to a lot of different things at once the relationship with the person that you're seeing um, and the current uh, concerns about what's going on in, in your life outside of the, the therapy uh, whether that's relationships or your own issues um, and then I guess there's a developmental lens so often we think about um, in, in the treatment relationship key events in the person's life, early life often, or traumatic issues or losses that might relate to or inform what is going on for the person in the present day. So I suppose there's that kind of focus. But, yes, it often is less structured or strategy-based and some of the effects of the therapy over time are more subtle or they're more complex in a sense. And I think it's always important when I see someone in therapy to explain that, you know, so that there's not this total sense of being in the dark. There's, I guess, um, a different kind of style for that kind of therapist. They're often actively listening and engaged, but leaving this space for you to bring what, what um, you need to or want to to the session. So you start to think about what's happened in the session after it and you start to anticipate the session um, leading into it. And, and so it's almost like you internalise the therapy process in between sessions. And then when you're in the, the therapy at the time, you begin to have, if the, the therapist is engaged and interested, but they're not necessarily being too inquisitorial or dictating the structure of the therapy, um, you, you're starting to put yourself into the therapy. And, and of course, part of that will be wondering what's going on for the therapist or, or what, what are they like? And, and that's where we talk about transference, which is you start to put, put yourself into picturing who that person is and what they're like. So the therapist, in a sense, um, doesn't put too much of themselves into the therapy. So sometimes you can wonder, who is this person? What are they about? You know, and, and, and that's part of the process because the therapist, if they're handling the relationship, can help you look at what you might bring into the therapy and what, what transference or how you relate to the person might be informed by previous relationships you've had or issues that you have and that kind of thing. So that's something that you can work with in the therapy and it's hopeful that as that comes more into your awareness or your understanding or your insight, that can be informative to you. You can kind of learn from that and think, well, actually, maybe I bring those patterns or tendencies into other relationships. So, and what, what is potentially really special and important about this more psychodynamic kind of psychotherapy is it's experienced, you know, and, and it's felt. So if it's a true kind of relational therapy, you'll feel it in the room and understand it emotionally. So it's not just... Um, in briefer therapies or more kind of cognitive therapies, often it might be an intellectual understanding, you know, and, and, but, but if you kind of experience it and feel it, it can often be more transformative, I guess. Mm. That's the hope. Mm. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, I guess, yeah, I, I haven't actually spoken to another psychiatrist about psychiatry before. I've only spoken to friends who have been, who have seen psychiatrists. So, yeah, that's actually... Um, yeah, I guess it's pretty eye-opening to hear. Uh, I mean, yeah, a lot of what you've described. Talk about what, what it's all about. Or what, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. I think, I think the interesting thing about it as well is there's this, we talk about asymmetry. So there's this idea that you, you can think, well, there's this person in this kind of clinical role or this, this um, authority role in a sense um, that, that you're visiting. And so I talk more about myself than they talk about themselves mm. and, and they might um, have more of a reserve um, and um, about um, what they disclose or, or, or how they relate to you. And that can feel a bit, you know, potentially intimidating or it can make you wonder what, what's, what's going on, you know, that kind of thing. If it's handled well, that can be something that can be used in the relationship to help help the person see what they bring into situations and into relationships. Um, but it can mm. leave you wondering who this person is. It's different to an ordinary relationship. It's a very mm. special kind of relationship, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, right. And like Foucault talks a lot about the kind of, um, you know, the power imbalance between the, the, you know, the specialist and the kind of, you know, the subject or the patient or whatever. Um, yeah, and I think... One thing that Foucault has taught me is that um, it's very unclear uh, which direction we should be heading towards at any point in our life. And I think especially that seems especially relevant in the, I guess, in in my experience of therapy. Um, I never know. I never really know what I should be aiming for or striving towards. And I guess I kind of. I feel uneasy sometimes about the, um, you know, the power that this person, that my therapist has, um, you know, they're able to affirm things that I say as being normal. And, you know, sometimes like say, okay, like maybe this is something we need to pay attention to. So, yeah, I think one, one, one question that I have is, uh, and I, I think this might be a pretty unfair question because I, I don't really think there's an answer, but is there like, is there an end goal to therapy? Like, is there a point at which um, it no longer becomes necessary uh, to, you know, continue with therapy? And like, can you, yeah, can you complete it? Is there, uh, is it teleological? Yeah. Mm. I, I guess in terms of a teleological stance, there might be an idea of, well, an ultimate sense of health and ad- adaptation, living well, feeling well adjusted, feeling freer in yourself, feeling more creative, um, feeling that the quality of your relationships and the intimacy you achieve in your relationships is satisfying and authentic and, and those kind of things. There can be kind of norms or or values about what a, what a version of psychological health can be um, and at a more kind of pathological stance it can be you you go to therapy with problems you know and, and that those problems resolve whether it's a certain level of mood or anxiety issue or there's some um, form of loss or, or trauma or something that's really uh, affecting you personally that you need to make sense of or work through um, and um, they they can be benchmarks or or signposts for how you're going in the therapy do you know what I mean but they're, they're very broad things, aren't they? That sense mm. of psychological health. So then the question is, well, who's determining? And I think this is the issue you raise around power. Who's determining? And, and you know, in some sense you can say, well, is the psychiatrist or the therapist the expert in you, so they should be determining it? Well, I think no. <laughs> um, and then there can be that sense, well, 
in, in some sense, therapy can be a commodity or something people pay for. So they might determine when they've had enough or whether it's worth it in some sense, worth their time or worth their money or, 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 or the investment or the, the psychological effects it has on it because it's not, as you, you may or may not agree with, it's not necessarily an easygoing ride or a salve, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? It, it, can, it can be taxing, you know what I mean? So what I come down to is that I think it's it's collaborative and it's relational. So you actually work those things out together. And and what I love about psychotherapy is, you know, there's billions of people in the world and no one's the same and everyone's different. So I actually look forward to a new relationship each time and I need to learn from the individual and, and engage in a relationship where they, in a sense, discover themselves through me and with me, you know. So I'm not someone that has an all-knowing stance or and omniscience or anything like that. I learn with the person. I've got some kind of experience and expertise in doing that kind of thing, but I don't have experience or expertise in, in that person's issues, so we discover them together. So it's kind of a, like a collaborative process, and, and I go into it with a not-knowing stance and a stance of um, needing to work that out. It makes me think, because I know some of this is about philosophy and theory. I write about these things in, in my book about uh, borderline personality disorder, because I think this notion of the borderline um, was something that really interested me because I think a lot of these ethical tensions and questions about what psychiatrists do and what psychotherapists do and how they also theorise psychopathology coalesce in this borderline term because I was very interested in it when I was studying and training that there was this very central diagnostic term that actually seemed like it was some kind of absolute entity or category, um, borderline personality disorder, but the, the term in its very nature reflects something that's marginal or in the middle. Or, and I just thought, that's very interesting. What does that say about what, what psychiatrists and psychoanalysts do that there's this entity that actually has, a, has something paradoxical or marginal in it? So that, that was the kind of beginnings of, of my exploration with, with critical philosophy and kind of analysing that term. And I get down to the ideas of well, what's the relationship, you know, for someone with borderline issues. I, I, I talk about instead of someone having a borderline personality disorder, there's this borderline experience that um, an individual's having that is actually shared by clinicians and, and shared um, in, in the kind of context that a person comes to treatment and needs to be grappled with together and made mm -hmm. sense of um, and, and worked through. And, and those issues around who's in control or who has the power or how the the treatment frame gets negotiated as a part of that. Hmm. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, and yeah, maybe I think this is all like, yeah, this is, I guess, uh, it's one, one thing that's surprising about science and the way people think about science is that uh, I guess we hope or some people hope that science will reveal consistent, tangible truths about things and, you know, you kind of there's this scientific method and you inquire and then there's a an answer and then that answer if it's replicated becomes you know a theory or something and then you know you're getting closer to the truth and i guess what what you have just yeah i guess at least what what you said suggests to me that there's a lot more of an embracing of the uncertainty of interpersonal relationships and that perhaps there isn't and like this this whole notion of the borderline and the ambiguity and the kind of tension between 
you know, like, yeah, like what, what does it mean for two people to come together? How, what is the objective? Maybe there is no clear objective. Maybe we just need to, you know, maybe the, we need to be more open or whatever. Um, I guess to me, it, it sounds like, uh, yeah, there's a lot more openness in psychiatry than, than is traditionally conceived of in medicine as a discipline, that there is like, uh, a freedom to kind of, there is a, like some vague sense of direction, but no rigid sense of direction. Um, and yeah, I guess it sounds to me that, that sounds like, uh, pretty radical, um, especially compared to the way that science degrees are taught at university where, you know, there's an expectation that, you know, facts and that you just learn information. And I have friends who are doing medicine and, you know, there's so much information that they just have to ram into their head. But then, yeah, I guess it sounds like your experience of your experience as a psychiatrist has been, or in therapy, your experience in therapy, doing therapy has been different. There is a lot more vagueness and that vagueness is often the, I don't know, like the, the important part of the encounter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. One, one thing that on the topic of vagueness, um, one thing that has bothered me for a long time is my inability to make decisions. And I'm often, uh, kind of, uh, uprooted and displaced by uncertainty. And I guess I feel quite uncertain in nature. Like I, I'm not, I guess there are some things that I feel strongly about other things less strongly. Um, but one thing I've noticed is that I feel a lot more uncertain when I feel depressed and when my mood is lower, it's more difficult for me to be convinced of things. Um, so I guess I was wondering whether you had an idea about the origin of depression or what causes depression or what prompts depression. Um, yeah, I guess I'll start there. Mm. I think, um, and then again, raising, I guess with this philosophical lens we're using today, I, I guess there's notions of vagueness I saw also like notions of complexity as well. And, and the idea that um, I suppose we doubt constructs or doubt ideas we use, how do we get our heads, heads around that? And um, I, in one of my books, I, I like some of Derrida's ideas about the supplement and, and difference and, and I guess the idea that well, for the time being, this seems like something that you know, is supplementary we can use to explain something and, and we can go with it with underlying reservations that actually the ultimate truth or the ultimate meaning of, of something isn't um, fully accounted for by this idea or this concept. But we'll just have to go with it for the time being. It's that idea of difference or deferring and, and this is as far as we can get with them. And I think using a notion like depression is like that in a bit it can mean so many different things to so many different people and it, and it can be seen as an entity like in, in clinical psychiatry and psychology we can talk about major depression or a major depressive disorder or clinical depression um, and we know though that that kind of entity is it's just 
described in diagnostic manuals. Um, really, the minority of people have something that fulfills the criteria or meets that kind of diagnosis. And there's a lot more complexity, really, in, in what people are describing when they say they're depressed. So to talk about a unitary entity or a unitary idea of what depression is, um, um, is uh, it can often betray that. It can often be a, like a supplement to something that's, that's not adequate in a sense. Um, a lot of different things are meant by depression, I think, and often clinically we might talk about um, people having difficulties adjusting or to a certain situation or accumulation of stressors or um, they can have vulnerabilities related to their temperament or a build-up of developmental adversities or traumas that can all impact a person having a depressive state at, at any particular time. Um, so when you meet people that are depressed, I suppose, I, I try to engage with it, that, that complexity and, and find out for the individual what's going on them in terms of their depression. With a psychiatrist's hat on, we mainstream psychiatry will talk about a, a biopsychosocial formulation of, of something like depression, which means we can think about the biological side of things, the psychological side of things, and the social side of things that might be contributing to a person's um, uh, depression, and, and that can be broadened out to cultural and spiritual issues as well. So biologically, there might be a lot of determinants of depression, endocrine problems, physical health issues that can contribute fatigue and um, affect a person's energy levels and motivation that can contribute to depression. And psychologically, people can have all sorts of things going on that can um, make them depressed mm. with more of a and, and similar social um, situations as well. Look at what we're dealing with at the moment. There is a lot more depression and anxiety in, in the COVID pandemic and, and all of the issues, unemployment, isolation, all of those things that are kind of happening for people and generally how people's life context is impacted and, and how key aspects of a person's life and their embedded context in their life, phases of life and transition, people finishing school or going to study or transitioning out of study into work, um, but then having you know, disruptions to those, those things as well, not being able to study, losing jobs, all of these things can contribute as well. So they're kind of social factors that are really important. So um, when I think what you're asking though is when you understand what's going on for a person um, and how you formulate, that's what we talk about in psychiatry, with their origins or the bases of a person's depression, and that is what you do with it, you know. And, and I guess the skill of a, a clinician is to look at all of those different issues and look at how a person's adjusting emotionally, psychologically, what they're their personality makeup or style is to how they can kind of um, deal with their current situation if there are any physical or biological factors contributing to their depression and what their overall social context or cultural context is as well. There's all of these factors that you need to weigh up mm. within the individual, I guess, like you're saying, the experience of depression, I think you're talking about less of a drive, less certainty, less... Um, motivation, less hope, all of these kind of negative feelings. Um, it can be very hard to kind of address for the person. And um, I suppose the clinical work is around engaging with the person and trying to um, work at all of those different levels of what might be contributing to their depression to help them get out of it. Um, some people with chronic um, depression can have particular psychological conflicts or particular um, psychological issues that can perpetuate their depression. They can have um, you know, uh, issues with loss or rejection or different key 
relationships that they've had in their early lives that they've kind of internalized. So there's all of this kind of negative self-criticism or, or pervasive guilt or anger that's turned on, on the self that can kind of perpetuate a depression as well. And sometimes getting back to the idea of psychodynamics and, and psychotherapy, sometimes those things can be really helpful to kind of bring out um, for a person to understand that, that they might be elements or facets of what is perpetuating their depression. So um, that can be something that can be really helpful to find out in psychotherapy. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I think one thing that you said that, I mean, is probably relevant for everyone who's listening is that the pandemic has removed a lot of things that we once had in our life like seeing people like seeing people's faces because everyone's wearing a mask now um among you know an infinite number of other things that have changed um and one thing that was one thing that i've forgotten who it was some one of the ministers for health somewhere said um you know you've got to remember to make your bed in the morning as a kind of antidote or a remedy for you know uh you know, the myriad consequences of living in a pandemic. Um, and that got me thinking, I mean, you know, he received a lot of criticism for infantilizing um, and patronizing, you know, uh, 23 million people. Um, but it got me thinking about pop psychology and uh, this, you know, these kind of universal lessons that people can deploy to like fix their life. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, there, there are there are so many, and I mean that uh, I I don't in my experience none of them have done much. Um, not that I've like you know seriously tried to. I mean, my bed isn't looking extremely tidy at the moment, but <laughs> um, yeah, um, I guess one one thing you said that yeah, one thing you said that my psychiatrist and and other. Uh, kind of therapists I've seen in the past have said when talking about my depression is that you know there's a hope that it is going to be alleviated and I guess pop psychology similarly seems to be aiming at an alleviation of suffering from people's lives and a kind of you know smoother navigation of the world or whatever um yeah and I guess you know uh I haven't done that much continental philosophy um i've done some and i really enjoyed uh and uh, yeah i really enjoyed and really connected with some of the more pessimistic conceptions of the world um not so much nihilism but you know a kind of an acceptance of the meaninglessness of things and uh you know not constantly looking for meaning and you know trying to be positive and whatever um yeah, and I don't know, I, like, do you, how do you feel about all of that? Do you really, because, you know, some, and then just another thing that, like, I guess is very interesting for me is that sometimes I really fear not being depressed because, you know, it becomes, this is probably, like, some of my friends who are also have had experiences of depression have described a similar thing that, um, you know, when something becomes so familiar, I guess it's frightening to learn that it's possible for you to be otherwise um or that you know you can exist without this kind of weight 
Um, so yeah, those are two different things, but I guess my question is more about the, yeah, like the kind of ambition to rid people of this weight that sometimes I guess it feels like we don't want to rid. Um, or yeah. So well, what do you, what do you think about all of that? I think yeah, there's a lot you're, you're saying and all of that, and some of that is about, well, what's some kind of problem or clinical problem like depression and how can that be um, woven into some kind of worldview where we um, need to have a, we'll talk about those maxims of health before some um, you know, fully adjusted, um, shiny, spot-free kind of um, happy existence, you know, to, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind kind of um, <laughs> existence rather than um, having existential angst and confusion and, and moral paradox and confusion about our lives and, and, um, and yeah, exposure to, to um, all of the, I guess, the, the brutality of life and our mortality and, and, and all of those kinds of things that, that are part of existence, I suppose, and that philosophers address and that they're, an important part of um, um, a, a life experience that we don't want to flee from or, or hide from, in, in a sense, and that's a, a part of life. And that um, there, there's lots of dimensions to that, aren't there? I guess if there's versions of, of kind of well-being, in a sense, or positive psychology that are eschewing all of these broader existential elements of life, they can also have a, a gross cultural bias, can't they, in terms of other people, some or and people in a broad sense, or other cultural experiences, or you know, I guess otherness in, in a broad sense as well. Um, uh, other um, experiences that um, all sorts of people and, and all sorts of groups might be having, and, and the idea that we can all get to health and all be in a similar state of hygienic health um, can seem like an, you know, kind of like some kind of uh, cultural perversion if, if mm. you like um, and I suppose when you talk about fixes there can be that idea that oh well there's something like mindfulness for example um, or a particular kind of um, well-being practice if you like if, if that's something that can solve everything or promote a, a kind of positive psychological state all of the time or are meditative states or um, those um, kinds of practices potentially something that can be something that someone can engage in but it might not represent a whole state of being or a whole um, um, form of kind of um, healthy well-being or something like that so that that's kind of a a question i think um around um for people that that have issues like distress and depression it's not necessarily this idea of escaping it or, or just annulling it it can be this idea that you need to kind of confront it and 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 understand it and experience it for what it is you might need to experience it and, and work through something as well i think um, so i suppose if we get it back to the clinical space when i hear someone say they're depressed i i it, it's it's the beginning of an exploration for me not like a sense that that's a diagnosis <laughs> yeah yeah and i think that's uh one of the most unfortunate things about the kind of uh, cultural illiteracy surrounding mental health um, that, you know, unless 
I don't know, maybe unless you're kind of a an uh, existential philosopher turned psychiatrist, unless you're that kind of person, um, you see uh, you see depression and anxiety and distress as these uh, you know things that need to be washed out of someone's life um, and probably not confronted and probably not kind of experienced and embodied and um, yeah and one thing that I have tried to do in this podcast and I guess I've done it in a curious way is um, to try and normalize and destigmatize depression specifically because I guess that is something that has uh, been very present in my life as a young adult um, yeah and I'm finding that uh, it's very hard to it's something it's very hard to talk it's not very it's not hard for me to talk about it but because the experience of the experiences of it are so like you know they're my experiences I often find it I'm often very confused about what to do next. Like, do I just keep talking about my experiences of depression with the hope that it's going to eventually become normalized around for people who listen to the podcast? Um, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure there. Um, but do you, do you know of, are you hopeful that mental health and depression, anxiety stuff will become more of a, uh, more of an accepted thing in people's lives? I guess, you know, maybe, there are some changes from the pandemic, like sick leave. Um, uh, and, you know, it's probably going to be impossible to deny that. Um, yeah, that, you know, there is such thing as mental illness that affects people's well-being after seeing, you know, after people having lived through weeks, months of isolation. So, yeah, is there like, do you how do you have any thoughts about trying to destigmatize? mental health and mental illness yeah i think openness and discussion is important isn't it and um and i, I guess validating people's experiences and, and offering support and i suppose looking at it through the lens of of health and, and mental health and raising awareness and um promoting positively different kinds of um, supports and, and organisations, mental health organisations, like Beyond Blue, those types of organisations, um, is really helpful. I think mental health, um, as much as we try to align it with other health issues, I think it is different uh, by its very nature. And there is this question of stigma and there is this question of moral judgment and, and all sorts of kind of um, moral and cultural perspectives that um, are overlaid with it um, that make it something that's quite um, difficult to navigate. But I think that um, raising people's awareness, having more open dialogues about it and, and validating people's experiences um, is, is a really important aspect of it. And I think um, people sharing those things, because in a sense, you at one level, you're talking about this idea of getting over stigma and, and shame and being able to talk more about these negative experiences, but then there's also this idea of contextualising them. Maybe it's not just a mental illness. Maybe it is about um, life context, um, everyone's kind of own experience and, and background and world that they come from, and um, 
broader existential issues can be a part of it. All of these things can be a part of it as well. So, but I, I guess appreciating that that in all of that there are problems of suffering and there are problems of being subjected to um, problems that um, people need more understanding and more support and more validation for is, is a part of that. So I think having di diverse um, dialogue, open dialogue and, and respectful communication and appreciation of otherness and difference rather than necessarily having a, a singular kind of um, kind of um, attitude or a singular idea of what it's about, you know, um, is really important. Yeah, mm. So it's kind of like an open, open and respectful dialogue, I think. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, and I'm with you. I think, yeah, what has been most helpful for me has been, uh, I guess, you know, therapy has been very helpful, but also, you know, having conversations with friends and uh, having them accept that what I'm saying is real. And that is often very powerful um, because, yeah, you know, a lot of the time, you know, I guess mental illness, as you said, by nature is unique because it is in the mind and um, it is, you know, it, it, yeah, I was going to say it's imagined, but I guess it's not imagined, but it's, uh, yeah, it does, it's not presented to others in the same way that, like, you know, a physical injury would be. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, one, one, one thing that that gets me thinking about is, um, like philosophy and whether that is able to provide people with an insight into, you know, their own experiences of depression specifically. I think probably depression is the most for me, at least, seems to be something that is like indirectly spoken about a lot in continental philosophy. Um, yeah, so, you know, we have like Schopenhauer who says something like, today is bad, tomorrow will be worse, and so on. Um, we have, uh, you know, the French existentialist philosophers who say that, um, you know, our life is a useless passion. Um, we have Camus who you know, who's protagonist in The Outsider. Um, yeah, doesn't really seem to be uh, <laughs> taking much in from his world around him. Um, yeah, and I guess uh, what what I've learned from these people is that um, there is so much, uh, there is so much suffering um, in the world. And uh, I guess that has been kind of reassuring for my my suffering, the suffering that I've felt. Um, uh, but yeah, I guess I wondered whether you have had, whether the how you think, you know, ontology or questions of being and the nature of being, how you think that has been helpful for you? Mm -hmm. I guess um, when I meet people that are depressed I, I and I guess the the meaning you know the of, of words I always um am drawn to the meanings of words but there's something about deflation and retreat and withdrawal um in the in the term of de depression you know so when I um meet people that are depressed I try to explore that and explore that retreat and I try to 
ultimately help the person re-engage and, and be able to express and and um and that can be through you know them finding their own authority in their life or in their own engagement in things whatever they are and understanding the person's life situation their life context to see what's of meaning for them and, and what's important to them and that they can whether it's thinking or acting or relating that they can have a more expressive and related kind of um existence um so i suppose um linking it to philosophy with getting too technical i think about modes of expression modes of desiring modes of authenticity um and and in terms of not fleeing a person's life context that is to confront you know the finitude and the the, the limits of our existence the things that we come up against that we can't change and the, the broadest ones being our our mortality and, and, and the, the, the limitations of our existence and all of those kind of things that need to be confronted but I help try to help the person find a more engaged expressive authentic um, uh, way, way of engaging with, with, with the world and their lives in a sense and so I'm informed by different kinds of um, philosophical orientations and we go back to thinkers like Heidegger um, I'm interested in that are about kind of um, act, active being and authenticity and, and, and engaging with, with one's life situation that we're ultimately um, didn't pre-construct and it wasn't pre-constructed for us and we were thrown into and um, we have to come to terms with in a sense and, and helping a person do that kind of honestly and, and openly and um, and I suppose different um, philosophers that I've read over the years have helped me you know I guess understand the the, the complexity of that um, and the, the ones that I've been interested in that overlap with psychiatry have a have, have this kind of critical orientation to health sciences and, and psych, psychiatry and psychological sciences and and can can um, kind of relate to how those kind of scientific orientations try to address address issues of mental health or emotional health or psychic health and and think about it more with this broader existential kind of lens i guess yeah right um yeah i think uh, yeah i'm i mean i i think that the study of philosophy has been nothing but uh eye-opening and enlightening for me um and i guess yeah i wish it wasn't uh as um (laughs) as much of an alienating and isolating discipline um, yeah, yeah, because some of it can be very complex and esoteric, and and psychoanalysis is similar as well. Although you know, some thinkers might think of psychoanalysis as kind of, in some ways, anti-scientific or anti-philosophical in lots of ways, but um, it is also a very esoteric kind of discipline, but a creative discipline as well. New thought, thinking about ways to be and ways to exist and ways to understand our our, our lives ultimately. Mm. Um, and on that note, how, uh, what has, I guess, yeah, people, um, when I kind of posted on my social media that I was interviewing you, a lot of people were curious as to how you, how you managed to incorporate psychoanalysis into your job. Because I guess, yeah, my experience at university is that there is, in Australia, at the University of Melbourne, there is a ridiculous and really violent rejection of psychoanalysis um uh and 
Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I'm i not remotely well-versed in psychoanalysis. Um, so yeah, I guess how uh, how has it, what's it been like for you uh, incorporating that into your, yeah, into your career? Have, have you received much of a pushback from mainstream medicine? Um, is there much of a community in of psychiatrists who are also well-versed in psychoanalysis? Yeah. So psychiatry is very interesting because I think there's a very uh, scientific and biological orientation to psychiatry, but there are also notions of the the art of psychiatry, if you like, and the history of psychiatry where psychoanalysis, the further you go back, was increasingly influential. Um, so looking, say, for example, at my book about the borderline and, and why I'm interested in the borderline term is borderline term really came from a time in um, primarily North American um, psychiatry and psychoanalysis where they were both quite wedded and they were both quite prominent. So one of the early writers um, who wrote about borderline states, um, Robert Knight, um, was the president of a, a, a psychoanalytic and, and psychiatric association in America. He had quite a position of power. And I guess there's this lag, if you like, um, where these kinds of... Um, terms and these notions and ideas and these practices crystallize and they remain influential. So within contemporary psychiatry, psychoanalysis and remnants of psychoanalysis are still quite influential um, as habits of, of thinking and habits of practice, um, which are either implicitly or explicitly acknowledged. Um, so that, that's kind of there, you know, these kind of, um, like I was talking about the psychodynamic orientation mm. before, this developmental orientation and this relational way of working with people, um, which isn't formal psychoanalysis, seeing someone on a couch um, four or five times a week um, and engaging in some of the traditional psychoanalytic techniques, but it's influenced by psychoanalysis. And there is merit in, in those approaches um, and, and in the way they're practiced, and they're practiced a lot more than formal psychoanalysis is. Um, and then there are more contemporary uh, models of psychoanalytic thinking that increasingly more scientifically based. So this is where, much like um, this philosophical orientation to the interpretation of science and, and this kind of critical orientation to it, there are contemporary forms of um, psychoanalytic thinking that focus a lot on infant development and brain development and brain development research and is quite, in a sense, empirically informed um, and as empirical understanding of the brain and development and the impact of trauma on the brain um, and prolonged stress and in different types of um, difficulties with early attachment between the primary caregiver and the, and the baby and the child um, is understood. Models of, of understanding psychopathology or, or emotional difficulties and treatment approaches have been um, informed by that. And, and so the psychoanalytic practice of, of psychotherapy and some of the basic elements I described are informed by those kinds of um, developments in a sense. So there's kind of like historical practices that psychiatry is influenced by and there's contemporary models of psychoanalytic psychotherapy that are quite influential in um, North American and European centres. So in Australia, um, yes, you're right, it's not, there aren't psychoanalytic departments in universities and there aren't psychoanalysts holding key positions in hospitals or in psychiatric or psychological services. But the um, actually some of the contemporary um, models of psychoanalytic psychotherapy 
and and some of the traditional practices are still quite influential. So it's not not that alienating necessarily. And so I've been the chair of um, psychotherapy advanced training for the College of Psychiatry for uh, about seven or eight years, and and. It's the biggest kind of, or one of the biggest subspecialties in, in psychi- psychiatric training. And so a lot of psychiatrists want to do that kind of practice. And most of them are interested in psychoanalytic type psychotherapies. So it's, it's actually quite prominent. And a lot of psychologists will do their formal training um, and um, they'll come out of their, their formal clinical psychological training and a lot of them will be into more of the CBT and all the variants of cognitive behavioural therapy, but quite a lot of them actually go into more of the, the psychoanalytic psychotherapy type areas as well. So you mm. may have heard of mentalisation or transference-focused psychotherapy. These are all modern versions of psychoanalytic psychotherapy, so it is out there. And um, But there's all sorts of um, complexity and, and problems with traditional Freudian ideas and Freudian psychoanalysis, you know, but... That's in a sense not surprising, given it's over a hundred years old. A lot of it, um, but also because of the, the the personalities involved, and because of the kind of um, some of the aspects of the theories that are, are, are outdated or they are very culturally biased, and all of those kinds of things. There's been lots of progression since then. If you look at most areas of, of medicine or clinical areas, if you look at what was going on a hundred years ago, you'd see the same thing. Yeah, right. And are you are you hopeful that uh, I guess uh, the Australian uh, medical system, the Australian psychiatric body, um, will continue to. Uh, like, are you hopeful of the? Are you confident that it is a? It is heading in the right direction in terms of you know having this diversity between CBT and um, psychodynamic. So. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. We look, yeah. for example, at how much prominence trauma-informed approaches and, and trauma-informed practice is, is becoming. And uh, a lot of um, trauma-type approaches are disseminated through most of the schools of psychotherapy, including psychoanalytic schools across mm. the CBT, um, and it is quite adopted. And I was at a, a forum yesterday uh, for um, the College of Emergency Medicine in there announcing a, a new policy which is essentially about people that have nowhere else to go there in the emergency departments too much it's a very traumatic environment and i was hearing all of these emergency physicians and people with lived experience talking about how the emergency departments need to have be much more therapeutic spaces that are helpful for people with um, complex trauma issues who, who often you know, need emergency support and they find um, those environments highly distressing, lots of lights, lots of people with physical health issues, really, you know, a lot of stigma, a lot of negative responses to presenting and those kind of things. And, and there was actually, amongst people that weren't mental health professionals, this real sensitivity and attunement to what people with trauma issues um, might experience from an emergency department and what trauma-informed practices. So I think there is increasing awareness, and that's just an example, and increasing discussion of these things. Hmm. Yeah, cool. That's really, um, I guess, really reassuring to hear. Um, because, yeah, I feel like one thing that has become uh, increasingly clear to me as I've grown older is that um, I feel like there is a lot of trauma that I have inherited coming from, 
you know, a migrant family. My dad is Algerian. His family lived through the independence war. Um, my mum is Macedonian. I don't know. Um, I guess there isn't as much uh, conflict, um, recent conflict. Um, and yeah, I feel like, uh, yeah, I, I would like to, um, yeah, to have more discussion of that. And I feel like there is, you know, this intergenerational trauma, I guess, is like a buzzword now, which is, I guess, good because, um, you know, people are aware that this is a thing. Um, and there's um, epi, is it epigenetics stuff, inherited? Yeah, there's um, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, okay. Um, one one thing that I have been, another thing that I've been asked to ask you about is um, uh, the relationship between uh you know the the huge spike in the incidence of anxiety and depression and the use i guess the existence of social media um uh yeah i like you know i i find it quite stressful uh, um uh i'm not sure i find it depressing um but i i'm not sure that yeah what what do you what what are your thoughts on that topic yeah i um in reinterpreting the borderline, I talk about hysteria was a clinical notion in the Victorian era. And in that era, there was taboo and silencing and um, and things were unspoken and couldn't be thought about. And I think I compared that to a more, what I called a borderline era, borderline experience where there's a lot more exposure things were a permissive culture uh, and there's graphic exposure and i was just in a, a clinical review meeting this morning um i was hearing um someone talking about a clinical situation where someone was on a a, a um a tiktok you know tiktok and there was this viral um um image of someone who had Apologies to bring up something gra graphic and unpleasant, but who had apparently suicided and, and literally blown their brains out, and this had gone viral. You know, and there's this idea that anyone could see this, and it was meant to be suppressed on on the platform, but then it was, um, you know, however they mirror it and put it in other contexts, and it was all over the place, and anyone could see it. And, and you know, this is as far as I understand. I don't use TikTok, but you know, this is something little kids use, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's kind of a graphic example of. We're not in an era where nothing's talked about or nothing's felt or nothing's experienced, but we live in a culture where there's graphic, permissive exposure to all sorts of um, material, you know, sexual and violent material, and um, and then also this sense of boundaries as well in terms of the um, virtual and the, and the digital exposure to relationships. You know, um, people can grow up where the, the boundaries of of connection to people and um, and their own um, private lives is, is quite distorted by the digital space as well. So, yes, I think those issues um, can um, overlap or coincide with, with problems with anxiety and, and problems with um, confusion about one's um, identity and one's sense of safety and one's sense of self and, and all of those kinds of things. Like so much with technology, I'm very interested in technology, you know, um, and ideas of people like Bernard Stiegler who, who talks about technology as a, a fundamental part of, of, of our developments and our being, you know, um, we're, we're the human beings of the 
people that are technological beings and this is our current technological culture that, that we live in and, and is it that issues like depression and anxiety in this space are going to be more pervasive you know because of um, the technologies that we use that are so convenient you know I can whisper across the room to play a, a song that I hadn't thought about for 20 years and it could be played instantly whereas when I was your age I'd probably have to you know save up some money and, and ask a, a um, record store to, to buy a CD and I'd have to wait a week for it to come in before I could listen to the song whereas now this mm. gadget can track it down and play it instantaneously for me so everything's accessible and immediate and and I also find in terms of experience of time I um, miss that idea I, I talked to younger people about the idea that I will if I was going to meet someone as a teenager we might have some loose plan to go and catch up with them in the city but we'd have no way of communicating with them you might spend the whole day kind of wandering and asking people and you might have these different kinds of adventures where you never locate the person but it's this kind of wandering kind of ambulant experience or this day that you know where there's little interludes and episodes that happen and you never see your friend whereas now everything's just so immediate and you can decide well i'm not even going to leave the house to, to socialize because i've got i've got my five closest friends in my bedroom on my my platform so everything's a lot more immediate so mm. it's it's i think the impact of all of those things on sense of self self and boundaries and agency and time are really profound and like you know i think it's a banal thing to say but i think we don't know how impactful it is it's all happening around us and in front of us at some kind of event that's happening that we don't comprehend it's bigger than we can comprehend i think mm. yeah um funny that you you uh told the story of you as a younger person um, tr- trying to find a friend but not being able to find them because I think for years I've been meaning to ask my mum how she met people when she was younger but I forgot to do it and I guess I've got an answer so maybe you know may- maybe it never happened <laughs> maybe um, no but that that's quite a uh, yeah I guess that is a totally foreign thought to me um, yeah I guess I uh, I wasn't old enough I think when I started to socialize by myself, it was, you know, being regulated or being organized through a phone um, and it was easy. And yeah, and I'm just, I, I can't even, yeah, the thought of, I think I'd quite like the freedom of like, you know, being like, hey, let's meet in the city and then just roaming around the city for a day. But I'm not sure. I, I think, yeah, a few of my friends would, you know, a few of my friends who resent me for my tardiness and my lack of punctuality wouldn't really like that. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Well, Paul, um, I've taken up a bunch of your time. I won't, I won't uh, keep you for too much longer, but um, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for talking to me. This has been a really, yeah, lovely and uh, eye-opening conversation. So thanks. Thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I want to it's, it's funny, I think about hospitality um, and this notion, uh, and you're talking about seeing a psychiatrist as a, as a psychiatrist, often there's this uh, with hospitality, I write about this idea that someone comes into your space and, and that can be very influential in the sense like you were saying, well, who is this person and how do I feel going into their space, their clinical office or their room and, and um, receiving me in a sense and how that makes me feel. Um, and how to make that, with, with that asymmetry there, how to make that a relationship and a dialogue that the person feels comfortable with and they found their own authority with um, the process of the therapy. But I guess I came into your space today. And we're doing more of this. I'm doing more 
psychotherapy over Zoom where we, I'm seeing people in their own environments rather than coming to me, but I've come into your space today, your, your room, and you've run the interview and the time and the questions and all of that, and I appreciate um, how, how you've handled it and you've, you've welcomed me into your space and, and also how honest you've been with your own life experience as well, which I think um, was you know, a really important part of, of what we talked about as, as well today. So I appreciate that as well. So thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. Those are some really lovely and uh, moving words. Yeah, um, I, I didn't really think about it like that. But yeah, I guess you have kind of, this is my space and this is like, this is a project, my project. Um, yeah, and no, thank you. Yeah, you, you, I felt very comfortable inviting you into this space. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for talking with me, Paul. Right. I look forward to catching up with you some other time in the future. I appreciate it. Cool. Thanks. Right. Nah, but the rain no money in this business. Yeah, so what long can I keep it doing this shit? Yeah, live forever, that's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling.